One note of apology. Um, I didn't get dressed up for you, so I'm awfully sorry. Um, I was somewhere else and have come on from there. So, um, But it's still a pleasure to see you, even though I trust you can say the same. So today we're looking at uh, the 12. Uh, we should have known better. So just... Um, Remind ourselves of why we're here. It's Lent, we're taking stock, it's our MOT, um, and as disciples, we're using this occasion to look at how we're doing and saying, Lord, can you speak to us afresh, show us what we might need to do differently. This evening we're thinking about the twelve, the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles. They were, dis- they were called in Luke 6, uh, and you'll see that we're going to trace them through the gospel to the end, our big narrative overview. Then I'd like to offer you looking at one passage and then uh, to ask you to look at another passage. When we look at just these little cameos as we go through the narrative, we see little aspects of each which we're going to try and weave together. Uh, and we begin by looking at some of the narratives of uh, offered us by some artists as they looked at um, the Twelve. I suppose one ought to say this straight away, that actually the Twelve very, very rarely appear as uh, in the centre of the tension. They usually, in fact almost always, are linked with what Jesus is doing. Just occasionally you'll see that they have a sort of starring role in their own right. Um, and you also remember, too, that in, when Jesus called the first three, Peter, James, and John, those three somehow f- had a special place in, the tw- in amongst the twelve. They were, the, if you like, the, um, the inner core, really, the inner group. So we're thinking of the twelve when they were the twelve together. They move in and out of the go- in view of the gospel. Uh, you might remember that... Um, Jesus commissions them in Luke 9 to go out and preach. And we'll think about that in a moment. Um, But do you you notice what they do? It's rather like being in a theatre. They then go out. They disappear from view. So the narrative continues what Jesus was doing. And a bit later on, they come back in saying, Lord, you'll never believe what. So the focus is fairly relentlessly on Jesus. And the, the, the 12 weave in and out of that. Well, let's begin by looking at how some artists then have had a go at, at, at representing them. They found the same thing that you will as a reader, that actually you can't do much with the Twelve unless you've got Jesus in the picture. So I'm going to suggest uh, four uh, moments in the life of Jesus and the Twelve. First of all, the feeding of the 5,000, then the calming of the storm on the lake, finally the Last Supper, which was actually one of the most painted scenes by artists up and down the, the centuries, And finally, the ascension. So if we move then to the first of our pictures, the miracle of loaves and fishes, slide two. This was painted by Tintoretto in 1550. The feeding, the miracle of loaves and fishes, the feeding of the 5,000. What strikes you about the scene? They are rather dressed up, aren't they? The lady in the foreground seems to be going to, if not a ball, at least certainly a rather, an Aldridge cheese and wine, wouldn't you say? (laughs) 
I mean, they're all like it. Unless you can just see the, the faces behind Jesus and all the disciples. As Jesus takes the loaves, gives them, and out they go. Tintoretto painted uh, in a time when uh, people liked to see themselves in the paintings he did. And so these are people from his day. Now, I don't know whether it struck you. Uh, th these actually were, this was a two, there's a long painting that, that hung in a chapel. And so when you looked up at the, in those days when people didn't read very much, and you looked at the pictures to reinforce your understanding of faith, um, or when the sermon got boring, um, you could look at the pictures, you see, it's lovely, really. Um, they would have thought of the communion service, because there's Jesus giving out bread, like here's the bread in the communion. The thing that struck me was, none of them looked very hungry. <laughs> in fact, I think some of them might be able to lose weight. So it was, it was, it was saying something for their day, but I'm not sure how much <clears throat> that represents what, what was going on then. Mark you, when you come to look in the text of the Feeding of 5,000, who says these people were hungry anyway? Nope, it wasn't Jesus. There were some of the disciples. The crowd never say a word. I don't know whether they were hungry or not. Just to offer you that. Let me move on. And secondly, another version of the miracle of the loaves and fishes. Remember, um, I mentioned an artist called James Tissot, a Frenchman, who um, had this vision in his 40s of Christ. He was doing a portrait. He was a great portraiture and would paint uh, fine ladies, fine portraits of fine ladies. And when he was doing one of these, he, he positioned this woman in the... Um, in, in a church, and as he was painting, he had this vision of Christ feeding the poor, and he thought, I must go back to my Christian calling. And he then agreed to paint a whole series of paintings. Uh, it was a 10-year project, 350 of these, from the moments in the life of Christ. And they were bought in, 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 uh, in 1900 by the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and they still have them today. And when they had a display, they put on 270 of them at once. And the crowds came in. There were people weeping. And it was like a mini revival, really. These pictures were just speaking. Well, here is his version of the miracle of the loaves and fishes. What strikes you from this? Yes, they're sitting down. It's very ordered, as the text suggested. Make them sit down in groups, wasn't it? Yes. It's much more realistic. He, when he realised that this is what his calling was, he went out to the Holy Land just to look at the landscape so he could get the right rocks, the right grass, the right sort of contours. And he, so he tries to paint it, as it were, there, and as, it, as it would have been if, had he been there looking at it. And he strike you as a little bit odd. Jesus exactly. Who's centre stage? Two disciples giving out the bread. Where's Jesus? Yes. He's the only one in complete white. And he's, he's just standing by a rock on the right-hand side of the picture. In the middle distance. 
giving out some more bread. You can see some people walking off to the, his left as they take more bread out to the, to the crowd. Isn't that interesting? Because by painting it that way, the, the emphasis is not on Jesus the person, but it's on this miracle. Where has all this come from? You start with five loaves and two fishes, and look at this. Panniers of bread. Okay, so that's the feeding of the 5,000. Now let's look at um, Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. This is a picture painted by Rembrandt. Um, It actually is 1.6 metres high, it's about this big, and it was stolen from the museum in 1990. It hasn't been recovered yet. It was in the the museum in Boston, in the States, and they think that one of the Boston underworld gangs has got it as some security. Uh, But they haven't traced it yet. However, we have copies and photographs. And so here we see Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. What strikes you about this? Where is Jesus? Well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll zoom in in a moment. But just for now, just taking the whole picture, the picture as a whole. It was seriously bad, wasn't it? That was a real storm. So the rigging's gone. One of the sails is ripped. There's a storm coming out over the bow. And then if we go to the next, if we're looking a bit more closely at the boat... So you've got this storm crashing into the boat. And the disciples, one of them has been seasick, I think. <laughs> and there's Jesus. Real fear. Because the, when those storms come down, Lake Galilee is like that. Uh, if a storm whips up, it just comes herring down. Hello, come in. Um, it just comes down and... and Within sort of 20 minutes, you can have a raring, raging storm. And, and there's more than a swell. There are sort of ra- breakers going across the lake. So he conveys just how enormously frightening it was. And then a more recent artist has another go at the same theme. The French artist de Lacroix in the next... There we are. Anything strike you particularly on this picture? Yes, this time it's a rowing boat. It was interesting, he painted six of these. Some had sails and some didn't. (laughs) I don't know why. And this is the one that didn't. Uh, Sorry, this this is number four in the series of six, and this one didn't. But in a kind of way, I suggest actually, it, the, the, the boat looks even more fragile there. It's just an open boat with these waves. Um, well, Van Gogh saw that, and when he saw it, he thought it was brilliantly evoked. He said, because what, what Delacroix has done, he's made the sea very sort of vivid and menacing, the lowering the clouds, and the light which is the hope, is the little sort of, almost like a halo around Jesus. It's the only really bright light in all of it. 
It's red and fearful and green and menacing. And then just there, Jesus, the one who brings calm. Yes, there seems to be poetic license in the number that are still in the boat. They've either lost three or they didn't get in in the first place. <laughs> You'll need that in a moment. Okay, so let's look at that. Shall we, now, if we move on to um, the Last Supper. This is a well-known picture. You've probably all seen it before. Leonardo da Vinci uh, painted on the wall of um, a refectory. Unfortunately, if you paint on the plaster, it degrades over time. The great thing is that one of his assistants painted... A, a, an exact same size copy with all the original colours in, in oil on canvas and we still have that. And what is even more interesting, we have Leonardo's notes and so we know which disciple is which because he says so in his notes. The one on the left did that of them. So you can see Jesus there. Now, if, if you go across, the, the, one, the person I think of interest there's Jesus there. If you turn, if you go to the left, there are four groups of three. There are three here, three here, Jesus, three, three. Okay? And some suggest that that was quite deliberate. That was trying to re recall the Trinity. Just a little drop, a little oblique hint. There are three windows, and so on. But let's, let's just look at more at face value. The, the, so you've got three disciples here. Then you've got three here, and you've got one at the front who's got a green and blue colour, who's looking sideways at Jesus, as if Jesus had just said something which has shocked him. And in his hand, you can't see it from that, but if you got close, there is a, a, a container of money, a little bag of money. So that's Judas. So this is the moment at the Last Supper when Jesus said, one of you here is going to betray me. And it's almost as if Judas says, what? He turns and looks beyond. And if you see, just behind Judas, there's Peter looking over his shoulder at Jesus. You know, what do you mean? And then there's John, the young John. And if you could, if you could track down the shoulder of Judas, you'll see there's a little knife there. Peter has a knife in his hand, as if, you know, no, they're not, Lord. And do you remember Peter later in the garden? He gets out a sword and starts. So here we've got the same thing. Absolutely not, Lord. And then the, uh, the, the second version of the Last Supper. Much more realistic, late 19th century, Carl uh, Bloch. Now, he is an interesting artist because he painted, he, he painted these so well that he was commissioned to paint 23 big pictures of the life of Christ and did so. I think it took him 14 years. Yeah, 14 years to do that. This is one of them, The Last Supper. He, he started, he was asked to do 23, and then it went on to 29, eventually uh, a few more. These have been so appreciated. Uh, you, you can see the originals still if you go to uh, Copenhagen. He's a Dutch painter. But they've been so appreciated that the Church of Latter-day Saints, that's the Mormons requested permission to use these in the literature where they do uh, books on the story of Jesus' life. And they use a lot of these because they think they're so realistic and they do put Jesus right at the centre. So what's happening in this picture? 
That's it. This is the moment just after that first moment. Judas is beginning to go away. And the center is on, the focus is on Jesus. And the disciples gather around, looking at Jesus. And there's John, uh, the beloved disciple there. And then lastly, looking at the ascension, we have two pictures there. One uh, from Rembrandt, uh, sorry, Dossie. Dossie mixed naturalism, people looking like real people, with the, the, the symbolism of having heaven up there and earth down there. And so you get, uh, there's Jesus. Now, what, looking at the disciples, what do you notice? This is the ascension. Thank you. Whoops. Then look at the second ascension. This is painted by Rembrandt. Now you probably can't, but I've counted, and there are only 11. <laughs> so thank you. There we see the disciples in on the frame. And do you notice, when they're there as a group, we, we hardly know who is whom. We're, we're not looking at them as individuals. They're just a group of ordinary disciples. And in a kind of way, I think that's really encouraging because they're much more, they're much more like you and me. There's not... Well, there might be a Peter and a James and John and St Paul here. Oh, it's like... Oh, that, perhaps it was just over the back and I can't quite see. But most of us are just ordinary disciples trying to make sense of what it means to be a Christian. And so were these. It's interesting, Luke in Luke 6 says Jesus had a night of prayer and then he called 12 out of all, the, all his apostles, uh, called them apostles, and he gives all the names. But those names, nine of those, ten of those, no, seven or eight of those names never appear again. They are real, but then they just, as it were, they're in the background. And I think... If you were to identify with anybody, you might identify with some of the characteristics of Peter, but we're much more likely to be like those people. Slightly invisible, still trying to follow Jesus. Well, let's move then to the evening, the next part of the evening. So we're going to look on slide 11. We're going to do our literary homework, and then we're going to do a very brief look at some cultural background. Then we're going to look at uh, the storm on the lake. And then I'm going to ask you in groups to look at the feeding of the 5,000, and the mission trip. So let's begin with the, uh, the, the narrative uh, homework, the literary homework. If we look in the next slide, you'll see uh, the familiar one that Luke divides into five. Uh, the disciples were called during the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, so there's nothing to do with them in the first four chapters, so we'll put those to one side. So in all of these four sections, we now have something to do with, we will see something of the the twelve. So let's begin by looking at the first. That's the ministry in Galilee in the next slide. Galilee up in the north and then the road down to Jerusalem uh, for the last uh, sections. Because all the, the journey to Jerusalem, the passion narrative and the resurrection narratives all happen down in and around Jerusalem. But we start in Galilee. With the next slide you'll see that. So there we are. Luke 5, Peter, James and John are called. Uh, in Luke 6, the 12 apostles are called. If you'd like to just turn to that, you can see. Uh, 
Luke 6, sorry, Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 12. He called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Now that suggests to me, if you call a group and you choose 12, that must mean that there are more than 12, don't you think? See, we, we concentrate sometimes on the twelve, but actually, there was quite a crowd. Jesus had quite a following. We know in the bit in Luke 8, we're told that there were women who travelled along, and there were other disciples as well. So, there were a large number, and Jesus chose twelve. And I would imagine, they were was, was thinking to themselves, a mixture of great and, where is this leading? <laughs> Do you know, a bit of apprehension. We've been called to do what? So we see the 12 apostles there. And then in Luke 7, you'll see in the, on the, the schematic uh, picture, uh, n- n- nothing much. They just carry on. They travel around uh, with the disciples in a crowd. There's healings. Then in Luke 8, Jesus is still travelling. Luke 8, 1. He travelled from one town to another, proclaiming the twelve were with him and also some, wo- some women. Luke 8, verse 1 and 2. And then in Luke 9, when you get there, this is their moment of glory, really, the twelve. Verse 9, verse 1 on. When Jesus called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out. And as you know, that's the literal meaning of the word apostle. Apostle comes from the verb to send. An apostle is somebody who's sent out on a mission, sent out to perform a task. And they were sent out. So all through the ministry in Galilee, we can see the twelve being part of Jesus' ministry. They pop up here and there. And you can see very gradually, as you, if you, when you get the chance to read it in one go, is that Jesus is trying to help them see what the kingdom is and who he is. So every now and again he listens. Have you got it yet? And they carry on a bit more. Um, Bit by bit the picture begins to build. But actually it does take a while and they don't really seem to get it very easily. The great thing, when we look at the parable of the... um, the boat when they panicked. We'll look at it in more detail in a moment. When we look at that, what we know is that even though they panicked, Jesus didn't... I have this kind of picture in my mind that um, Jesus did not go around saying, you're fired. Now, I don't know whether you've, you watched that programme, The Apprentice, yeah? I, um, I think Luke is trying to say to his, his reader... These, the twelve, were very, very ordinary disciples. They were not great heroes and heroines. They were just bumbling, ordinary, muddled, well-meaning folk. Brackets. And if you're like that, this is for you. And if you're not, maybe you should look in the mirror. (laughs) And so every time they make a mistake, it's almost as Jesus says, okay, that's all right, let's keep going. And that's why when John rang, he said, what, what would you like us to sing? I said, well, I think the way Jesus looks at these disciples is an example of grace. It's a model of grace. 
it doesn't matter what you do really, Jesus will still continue with you. Um, I went to a college called All Nations and there, uh, because it's called All Nations, people used to use the Bible to get God's guidance, would pray, pray, say, Lord, where should I go to study? They'd open, oh, it's open at Matthew 28, go to all nations, and off they went to all nations. Well, that is, I mean, God can sometimes use that. I don't think it's a good way of reading the text, but it happens. God speaks through a verse. And I, and I went there and, and uh, got to know the principal, and he said he, uh, uh, there were a lot of young people there in their 20s and 30s, willing to go anywhere for Christ, wanting to trade, to be prepared to, to follow him to the ends of the earth. And a lot of them did. And the father of one of these young people came in and he said, can I just have a word with you to the principal, David Morris? He said, I just like to say my son is here. No, sorry, my daughter is here and she really wants to go for, and do things for God. Will you please encourage her in that? Because when I was her age, he said, I made a mistake. God called me to be a missionary and I refused. And I know that the rest of my life has been second class, second division ever since. And I don't want that for my daughter. Now, actually, I think it's true. You can say no and the Lord has to do it a different way. But his view that therefore the whole of his Christian discipleship was tainted from then on is completely mistaken. Jesus can take you from wherever you are and make from now on what he wants for you. You can't get out of it. You can't mess up enough to disqualify yourself from being his disciple. But we live in a world which, which looks at, at outcomes, at achievements, uh, what you, um, and therefore, when you don't outcome and you don't achieve, you condemn yourself. Well, look at Jesus, the way he treats these. He, he never, ever says, you're fired. And if you've said that to yourself sometimes, you can say, that is Satan, the accuser, saying, you're rubbish. You're not good enough to be a disciple. You've let him down again. And you need to just turn around and say, stuff you. Well, I don't know what language you use to Satan. You can pray about him, Satan, be gone, buzz off, disappear. Nonsense to you, my friend. Well, so here we go. We, we get all through the story. And when we get up to the bit that you're going to look at, we first, first we have um, going out on this mission tour and doing it, and then they come back, and then Jesus feeds the 5,000. And eventually, we get up to the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus goes up there, and he meets with the disciples. Uh, but just before that, he says to them, and this is where all of the ministry in Galilee is leading. He said, who do people say I am? Okay, who do you say I am? If you look in Luke chapter 9. <coughs> verse 18. Once, Luke 9. Once when Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him, he said, who do the crowds say that I am? And they say this, John the Baptist, Elijah, what not. What about you, says Jesus? Who do you say that about? And Peter says, you're God's Messiah. You're the Christ. And that is the pivot. Because from now on, Jesus has got something to work on. It's taken all the way up to now to get to that point. And they still haven't understood the words, even they said. 
But now Jesus can begin to say, as he does, look, verse 21. He strictly warned them not to tell this to anybody and immediately went on to say something completely new. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to, get, raised to life. Jesus couldn't get to that until we'd got to there. So if you go through all of the, the first bit of Luke's gospel, we never get that deep. But now, he says, now I need to explain to you what the Messiah is really like. Having said all of that, they go, pardon, what? When you get, uh, and then there's a lovely story about on the transfiguration, but only Peter, James and John. And do you remember Peter saying, here, here's Jesus. And he, or Peter says, Lord, shall we put up some shelters for you so we can just stay here? And, and Jesus must think, Peter, haven't you got it yet? This is not about staying here. This is about proclaiming the kingdom. And then they go down the hill, verse 37 and on, um, in chapter 9. A man comes up and said, while you four, Jesus and the three, have been gone, I came and I met your disciples and I said, I've got, uh, I want just to get this spirit who seizes my son to get him expelled. And I begged your disciples to do it, but they couldn't. Now, that is amazing because look, they couldn't. I begged your disciples to drive them out, but they could not. Turn back to Luke Chapter 9, earlier in the chapter, to verse 10. When the apostles returned from their mission trip to, to report to Jesus all they had done, what had they done? Go back up. He sent them, giving them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. And he sent them out to do it. So they set out and went from village to village, verse 6, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. So they have done it, but they couldn't do it. They're still learners, these people. I don't know, isn't that a bit like you? Do you find that there are times when you're on song and you feel you can be a witness or you can pray and you can see people healed or helped or converted? And then there are other times when it all just seems hard work. And you know privately that you've, you're just trundling along. You've, you're, you've sort of just, you haven't given up. You've just got worn down with it. Do you know? And then you say, oh yes, I, I, Lord, the Lord can do it, but I'm not sure I'm the one he can use to, to, to as it were, do it. They're ordinary disciples, these. I like the word bumbling. Are you a bumbler? Well... So that's, the, so that's what we get through in the end of the ministry in Galilee. The disciples have begun to see who Jesus is. They've done some ministry. Now let's see what happens next. We move to the next chapter, the next slide. And this is interesting. Jesus speaks to them, verse Luke 10, on the way. And that's it. Luke 11, they say, Jesus, please teach us how to pray. Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer in a bit. Luke 12, he says, turn, be on your guard. Luke 13, they don't appear at all. Luke 14, they don't appear at all. Luke 15, they don't appear at all. Have you got the picture? Luke 16, Jesus warns them, or sorry, wants them to learn. He says to his disciples, think, think of a manager. And he tells this really risky parable. We won't go into it now because it'll open a can of worms. But you go and read it and you think, wow, 
Why did you choose that parable, Lord? Yes, tweet your interest a bit. And then Luke 17 says, these are things which will, you will help, you will stumble over. Luke 18, the only thing the disciples do between Luke 10 and Luke 19, they do one thing. What do they do? They see people bringing children to Jesus and they say, stop it. God, mate. And Jesus turned around and says, no, you don't stop it. They're, they're world-class disciples, these, aren't they? Their audience, they, they receive teaching, but they don't do very much at all. And when they do do it, they manage to get it wrong. Well, then we move on to the next slide. We're now in Jerusalem. And because these people lived in Galilee, for someone, it's a very impressive place to come into Jerusalem. So they look around and Jesus says, beware. They see teachers of the law, great big learned people with doctorates and whatnot. And they see the temple, wonderful, huge, ornate. And Jesus says, and they say, Jesus, isn't this wonderful? And Jesus says, no, it's going to come down. So he warned them of persecution to come. Until we get then to Luke 22, where we have uh, the Passover, which we now know is the Last Supper. Jesus explained to them that there are three times in the narrative where Jesus explains about how the Son of Man is going to come, die, and be raised again. This is the third attempt now, right at the end, in Jerusalem. Uh, it's almost about to happen. And he's, he talks about that. And then he goes on to say, um, it, well, let's look at Luke 22, if you just, as you've got it in your hand. Luke 22. So in verse 19, Jesus takes bread and gives thanks. In verse 20, he takes the cup. 22, he says, but there's someone here who's going to betray me. The son of man will go, but woe to the man who betrays him. 23, they began to question amongst themselves, which of them it might it be? 24, and then they went on to have a dispute. And the dispute was, who do you think is the greatest amongst us? Can you imagine it? They've had three years of ministry with Jesus. It's, it's almost at the point where it's about to all unravel. And there's this argument going on about, are you greater? Than, well, who's greater? I don't know. I think I am. Astonishing. Then Jesus says, let's go out. And when they go out to the Mount of Olives to pray, he says to them, now pray. If you turn over, you'll see. Uh, verse... Uh, 40. On reaching the, this is Luke twenty-two forty. on reaching the place he said to them, pray you'll not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw and prayed. And then verse 45, when he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples, he found them asleep. Great. Did you, did you come to the uh, night of prayer? Sorry, I, I realise that, Aldridge, you do the, uh, how can I put it, I might get into trouble with this, the comfortable night of prayer routine. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are churches where they come into church and pray at three o'clock in the morning, but it means getting out, you know. And 
it's quite easy to sleep quietly because nobody knows as long as you turn up for the hour and disappear um, here they are asleep and then when the crowd come to arrest Jesus Peter's there with his sword he's, he's out and before Jesus they stop he's winded and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest verse 50 but Jesus answers 51 no more of this and he touched the man's ear and healed him so here on the night of the last supper we get the disciples still not having much of a clue still working it out how to do it themselves and then they disappear from the story and the only time they appear now is at the end of verse 23 chapter 23 uh, verse not the end of verse 49 in chapter 23 as it all unfolded that's the trial the crucifixion and Jesus dying on the cross it says there, verse 49, all those who knew him, those were the disciples, the twelve and the others, those who'd followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. They hadn't given up. They were still doing their best. But dearie me. These are the bumbling disciples who mean well and don't quite get their act together. So finally we move to the last section, which is next slide. 24. Isn't it interesting? Who goes to the tomb? The twelve? No. They, they are still meeting and they're meeting with the women, but the women go to the tomb, don't they? Ostensibly to anoint the body. Then uh, they see the angels, they come back and they say, that, tell the news, verse 11 of chapter 24, but the twelve and the others with them did not believe the women. Because their words seem like nonsense. Peter redeems himself a little bit by saying, hang on, perhaps there's something here, and goes off to explore himself. And as we know, discovers he's met by Jesus. So, the disciples, the twelve, didn't believe them. Then, a bit later, the, the clear, we're looking at Cleopas next week, which is great, but Cleopas and his, and his friend go all the way from Jerusalem down to, to uh, Emmaus, and then they, they, they realise it's Jesus they've had supper with. They come back and they say, we've seen Jesus. And still, they're saying, well, is it true? And then, finally, Jesus himself turns up. Verse 36, while they're still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And what do they do? They're startled and frightened. They say, hey, it's a ghost. Do you, don't you wonder, how long does it take to get the hang of these things? Well, shall I tell you, I think it takes a very long time. Because what they had to do, these disciples, they had to dismantle their presence belief system and reconstruct it with a new kingdom of God shaped belief system and that's what I find with new Christians um, I, I was a, a mission partner in Uganda and we had an American entrepreneur who actually had been converted and was really a great activist but I think looking at the way he went about it he, the Lord had converted his heart but he hadn't got to his business methods yet so there are all a number of wangles and wheezes which somehow <laughs> open doors and things. It takes a long time to have our whole worldview remade. And that's what's going on for these disciples. So they're still 
confused. Why are you troubled, says Jesus? Do you not think I'm real? Give me some fish and watch me eat. So they did. They first thought you. They gave him a piece of fish and he took it and ate it. Do you see the kindness of Jesus? He looks at these people. He knows they want to believe and he knows they cannot believe. So he says, how can I help you? Go on then. Give me some fish. I'll show you. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. This is what is written. And he went through it all over again. Then he said, you're going to be my witnesses. I'm going to commission you. And then he took them out to Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And finally, finally it worked. While he was blessing them, he left them. But they worshipped Jesus. You only worship God. They finally worked out who Jesus is. They worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually in the temple praising God. So, if you want to put it crudely, it took the disciples 24 and nine, no, 23 and 9 tenths of a chapter to get it. They got it on the, verse, the last verse of the last book, chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now, I think that's great that they got it. And I think it means there's hope for you and me. That's what I mean. You don't have to be sorted out yet. It's all right. Uh, it can and it will happen. And we have Jesus still persevering, going on with them, not telling them they're fired or anything like that. So that's how Jesus is presented relating to the disciples as we scan through the whole of Luke's gospel. He, that was quite a, a, a journey, wasn't it? Does that ring bells with anything you either already thought or have spotted in reading the text? Is there anything that's new or fresh out of that? Yes, that there were more disciples than just 12, or 12 and a few women. Yeah. Well, if you remember the entrance to Jerusalem, it says his disciples welcomed him with palm branches as he rode the, the ass into Jerusalem. And there must have been crowds there who just followed him and thought, this is the man who's healed my aunt or, or helped somebody I know. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if the 12 didn't all get carried up and say, yes, he's the king. And they were all, so there were, there were many more than we just see. Yeah. Anything else that's just new? Yes, the, the new thought for, for the tape is that um, the disciples were slightly in awe when they went up. These Galilean fishermen and their friends wound up uh, in a very august place. I suppose it's like people in, who lived in the country going to London, isn't it, and being impressed by the Houses of Parliament and, and Buckingham Palace and all that. Yes, and then meeting some of the people um, in the houses of Harold. Maybe if the house of Lords even better, so Lords somebody if that's your kind of bag. Um, well, we can be impressed with the philosophers of today. Yes. Uh, and Jesus was warned against them. Yeah. In awe of those who seem to have great status. Okay. Yes, thank you. All right. One more, yes. Go ahead. Thank you.
On this occasion, Jesus says, you believe in the first generation. Because he says in other Gospels, uh, in a similar situation, this, this, this type can only come out by a crowd. Mm. So uh, there's a contrast there. Yes. And the way I think to work at it is to work on it in Luke's Gospel first before you start bringing the extra, if you like, searchlights which cross-check and things. Um, and I think it's the co- for me it's the contrast between what they've just been doing and now what they cannot anymore do. And I think, I think my Christian life is like that. I can see periods of great fruitfulness and, and other periods where it is just seen, it's just humdrum. And you wonder actually whether it's, it's a bit too much so humdrum. I do. Okay, well that's the bigger picture from the narrative. One other thing before we start looking at text. Um, if, we look, if we move on to the next, this is something else about being a rabbi or being a teacher. If we go to the next slide, this is the way rabbis and teachers worked. Um, rabbis emerged when it was very important to know how to interpret the law, the Torah. And they actually spent time, their whole life, learning and interpreting and debating. And if you wanted to learn from them, you'd say, may I be your rabbi? The word rabbi literally means a master of the interpretation of scripture. So if you wanted to be a, a, a disciple, you would go and find the rabbi who you listened to and you thought, ah, I identify with that. And then you'd say, please may I join your little community of disciples, your um, yeshiva. And the rabbi would say, I don't know whether you can. Tell me why. And you, you could have days of interrogation. Mm, think about it. Uh, you come back another week. You know, all that. And eventually, he would choose the people whom he felt was going to, were going to be most able to carry on what he's wanting to commend. This way of looking at the Bible. And so he looked for the very best and discarded the others. They had uh, to come to him. He didn't go out searching them at all. And he didn't have very many. They had to commit themselves to follow him. That's fine. Well, now, that was the way many rabbis worked. And there were different schools uh, who developed whole patterns of interpretation. Just contrast that, as the next slide does, with Jesus. Jesus did minister as a rabbi. He talked about interpreting the scriptures. He did it when he was 12 years old. Remember, in the temple. He acted like a rabbi even at 12. But Jesus didn't sit there waiting for people to find their way to him. He went out looking for them. He didn't restrict himself to those who are most able. Instead, he seems to have chosen those who are uncertain, unskilled and sinful. He did expect wholehearted commitment as the rabbis did. But he actually promised grace. Not another set of commandments they had to follow, but an experience of grace. So Jesus was a rabbi in one way, but actually much more profoundly, he was a fisherman, fishing for people as he went out. Or the shepherd, looking for lost sheep. I don't know how many of you would be able to say this. Um, When you started out as Christian, did, did anybody here have that sense of the Lord has been on your case and it's just you who've been slow to wake up, or it's you who've been slow or to, to respond, or it's you who've been putting it off for various nefarious reasons. I can see some nods, yes. Jesus is out there, he's after us, 
in the, he's the hound of heaven. He, he wants us to enter into the new life. And if we are a bit sleepy or a bit dozy, he will come after us. Remember that um, description of C.S. Lewis? He said, I gave in and I prayed that I was converted that night, the most reluctant convert in England. <laughs> so Jesus is much more life-giving than that. Well then, let's just look at one passage together before we go into groups, and then you can sort of have a, a look at um, the, 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 the leaflet. If we look, go back to the harming of the psalm in Luke 8. Verse 22, chapter 8, verse 22. And I'm just going to canter through this because um, I'd like you to really to get it in, in, into the next bit quite quickly. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to the other side of the, the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. So here they are. Disciples, how many of them could operate a boat? Well, Peter and James and John certainly could. So you'd be all right, wouldn't you? Yep. And it's probably their boat you're in. So they know it's all there. You hop in, don't you? If you were one of them saying, yeah, these guys know what they're up to. They've been sailors, for fishermen for years. And you sit there and that's great. And Jesus has told you to get in this boat. You may actually not like being a little boat out on a big lake. But Jesus said, do it. And you said, right, Lord, I'll do it. Yeah, great. So they got in the boat and they set out. Jesus was in the back and then he fell asleep. Well, it had been a long day, hadn't it? So there you are. And then what happens on the lake? A squall comes down the lake. So the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. You, as disciple 12a, sitting in the boat with all this going on around you, I think you could probably identify with the next bit, couldn't you? Disciples went and they woke up and say, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Yep. Can you imagine yourself there? Okay. Apart from Gary, that is, who would probably say, reef it a bit, wouldn't you? Or something. (laughs) So the disciples went and they woke him, Master, Master, we're going to drown. So he got up. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Then he turns around and he looks straight at them. He said, where is your faith? Who are you trusting? Look, there's a great storm, but who said go out? You did, Lord. Yes. Who are you trusting? Are you trusting the circumstances which look as they can well me? Or are you trusting me? Ooh, well, there's a discussion. And in fear and amazement, they said to another, you see, it's interesting, they hadn't even heard the question. They were still pretty impressed by this trick. In fear and amazement, they, how can he command even the winds and the water and they obey him? They're just amazed. I was worshipping in a church where uh, a woman came to the vicar and said, Things move around in our house and there are rooms which are cold and you don't want to go into them. They're just not nice. And the vicar mentioned this to me. He said, well, what do you do about that? I said, well, we go and pray. He said, I've never done that. I said, well, should we go together? So we went together and we were welcome to this house. And this woman said, let me take you into this room. It was a bedroom and it was beautifully decorated. It was immaculate. 
bed, lovely bedspread, new carpet and everything. And the room felt ice cold and unwelcoming. She said, look, it's like this. Nobody wants to stay in this room. There's something in here that's putting them off. So I said, okay. And the, and the vicar was saying, so what do we do now? <laughs> I said, well, we asked Jesus to chase whatever else is in here out. So should we just pray? So we said, yes. So she stood there and I prayed and I said, Lord Jesus, we don't know what's here. But we ask that you will come into this room and you will dispel whatever is in here so this room can be used for the purpose for which it is, it's been decorated as a bedroom. And as we stood there, it was just as if somebody turned on the central heating. Within about 15 seconds, it was warm and it was welcoming. And even I, who thought the Lord could do this, was impressed. <laughs> and I looked at the vicar, and the vicar looked at me, and we thought, wow. And then they said, and we've got another room like it as well. Yeah. Oh, rats. And I, I, and I thought to myself, I wonder if it'll happen. Do you think Jesus can do it twice? I mean, it's a daft question, isn't it, really? Or more precisely, do you think if I pray, it'll happen twice? So they said, can you come through and pray for this one? Well, you can't. What can you say? Well, no, we only do one a week, you know. <laughs> So we went through to the next room, and it was the same. We just, it was cold and dank, and, and there was something just unnice un about it. And we prayed, Jesus, cast out, whatever, chase out, whatever, and, and recapture this room so it can be used. And you went, whoosh. There was no noise, sorry, that was me. It just went, the temperature went up, and suddenly it was a, it was a, it was a light, bright, welcoming place. And people say, oh, this is great. And they said, thank you. I said, well, let's thank Jesus. So we prayed and we offered a prayer of thanks to Jesus who come in and turned that round. And it was a bit like that. And they were so impressed that he'd done this. So we went and had a cup of tea and things. And they talked about it. Now, actually, it was a link in the step to some of those people there coming closer to Christ. And for some of them, actually opening themselves and following Christ. But for the others, it was just something great. It was lovely. Jesus had done it. But they, they hadn't seen beyond the miracle to what the significance was, just like these. I think I may have told you that there was a, a, a couple who had a, a minibus where they went out to uh, give refreshments to call girls in Bradford uh, on Lum Lane, which was a, this, this red light district. And they, they went out, there were no men involved, just women, so it was completely safe, and they would have hot soup and rolls and whatnot. And they were, they were doing this, and one of the girls came up, she, and she had a huge swollen mouth, there was a great abscess there. And she said, I don't know what to do with this, it's really getting me, bugging me this. And they said, step in the van, so they gave her some soup, she, and, she, and they said, should we pray for you? Oh, I'd love you, would you? So, said, so they prayed for her, they said, Lord, we just asked for your healing on, on this girl's condition that you'll heal her and, and, and remove, deal with that abscess and the pain that it brings. And as she sat there, it went like that. Just like that. And she goes, I'm better. And they say, yeah, Jesus has done that. Yeah, I know, Jesus has done that. There's no pain. And she looks in the mirror, hey, it's gone. And it had gone. Now, she, as far as I know, never did come to faith. But she went around telling all the people around there, if you pray to Jesus, he'll heal you. Look what he's done to me. Which I suppose is on the way, but I privately think, what a shame. I hope she does a bit more. Um, the disciples in the boat were in that boat. They were so amazed at the trick, they hadn't seen the significance. So Jesus looks at them. 
But he, they say, now who is this? He can, can you see them? He can change the weather just like that. And it will take more, more time. Well, those are the kind of things I think when you enter into the, the stories of the text will come alive. So, shall we move to our groups? And would you like to take the group this? And would you like to just read the first 17 verses? That's two incidents. First 17 verses in your group. And then try and enter into the world of the text and see what it feels like for this to unfold. Uh, uh, call us back in just over half an hour. Great. Join a group you'd like that's near to you. No, take that back. Sorry. Join a group that doesn't require moving too many chairs. <laughs> so, would you... Sorry. Would you care to gather, regather, reconvene? So we're going to pass around the mic, which is just waiting to go. Sounds like a train in a station. Now, does anybody like to say, what has struck them? Should we start with what you've dug up? Or... Yeah, Austin. Um, it came out, just the very first question, really, what the significance from on these two passages. And um, we're thinking um, the difference between the disciples have gone out and done this healing and, and, and meeting miraculous needs from people and then suddenly got together and they hadn't seen the people need feeding but the, the difference was it was a non it was a non-desperate situation the people wouldn't have died of starvation if they hadn't um, fed them and they could have gone away and got their own way back but um so the significance to me was that Jesus wants to do stuff where we it's not necessarily a desperate situation we can bring him into everyday life or situations and it can still be miraculous, but it's not because there's sudden desperate needs, so we don't have to go and you know find the starving people or the people at the death store or something. But there's everyday life, I think. So it's all right. Thank you. Uh, that was yeah. Yes. Any, thank you for that. Anybody else got a sort of comment? Would you like to just pass the mic to the next person who flags up they want to speak? Yes. I thought it was very interesting that. Um, uh, even a bit unfair, really, because they had been told to go out and to uh, to do the healing and so on and throw out demons. Yeah. And suddenly they were now faced with something entirely different. Yeah. Entirely different. Uh, so this was supplying food for people. And, uh, and of course, Jesus, Jesus was, was critical of them. Um, 
And I think that's an interesting picture for us too, really. We can come across something entirely different to our experience, but the Lord would say, well, you've, you've trusted me in other, play, other areas. How about this new one? Yep. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else got a sort of fresh thought? Oh, sorry, just down there. Do you want to pass it back? Tom. It, it just come to me just now, actually. Is a, uh, I think it's quite timeless in the sense that how would I feel now going to work with my colleagues and you know spreading the word of Jesus? And I, I think I'd feel uncomfortable at the moment because <laughs> they're just... You know, they're not Christians, you know. The way they live their lives aren't in a Christian way. And I think, you know, it, it would have been, it's hard for me just to go to work with people that I know. So could you imagine being a disciple, going to a town that, you know, no one knows you? Mm. you know, I think it would have been quite scary, really. I'm, I'm absolutely sure it was. But do you see, Jesus sent them a two by two. And I think that was so they could hold hands. <laughs> really? They go to a place, I think, Greek. What do we do now? We, we did mention, actually. Where, where did it say um, they went two by two? Is it, ah. is it in Luke or is it... Good questions here. Luke. Ah, very good. I think it was in a, it's one of the others. Yeah. Thank you. Well done, sir. Isn't that... <laughs> dear me. Thank you. Okay, anybody else want to... Um, there was another hand somewhere around there. Great, yes. Do you want... What what we thought was that um, probably the disciples had been out and they'd had all these miraculous powers, uh, driving out demons, preaching about the kingdom of God. And then they went back and perhaps they were a bit um, upset because they wanted to share all of this with Jesus, and which is why they said, oh, send them away, send them away, because they wanted him all to themselves. Although, as we said, they weren't the ones that had been doing the miracles. It had been through God. Yes. Anyway. Yes. Well, now, can I say thank you for that? Uh, one of the questions was, um, when, where we are... Verse, uh, question six, what is the issue which causes dissent? In verse 13. That's a bit cryptic. If you look at the story, in eight, uh, sorry, in nine, uh, one, they go out and do this preaching thing and they come back and they're overjoyed. Yes. Then, uh, when the apostle returned, verse 10, they reported Jesus what they'd done. He took them with them and they withdrew to, to a town called Bethsaida, away from the crowds, presumably, so they could have their own debrief. Yeah? But the crowds learned about it and followed him. Then the question is, what's the significance of who welcomes the crowd? Look at verse 11, halfway through it. So Jesus is there with the disciples. Who welcomes the crowd? Jesus. Jesus. Who, we don't know whether they did or didn't, but who is not said to welcome the crowd? The disciples. disciples. Okay, just log that. Then carrying on, late in the afternoon, the twelve came and said, Lord... Send the crowd away so they can go to surrounding villages and country, find food and lodging because we're in a remote place. Now, at this point, I'm sure that was true. Yeah? And Jesus says, and he looks at them and he says, You give them something to eat. Fair? He's encouraging them to exercise their ministry, their faith. What? And this to me 
is the giveaway. They answered, we've only got five loaves of bread and fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this lot, there must be 5,000 men here. That was my question when I was reading this. Why are the disciples arguing with Jesus? And it's when something crops up you don't expect that that gives you a little hook into what's going on. And so why are they arguing? Yeah, the scale of the task is huge. Yes. They're tired, they're, yes. They're, well, they're tired in the sense of elated tired and worn out tired, yes. Well, my reading is much as much as just here. Actually, these disciples are naughty boys. Let me just read you the story. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they'd done. Lord, you wouldn't believe it. And Jesus said, wouldn't I? <laughs> Do you know, we healed somebody... We prayed for them, and they got healed. She was on the end of the crowd, and she was walking by the end of Really? And then another, another the, the disciple said, and you know, when we went into this place, we prayed for somebody, and they started to speak. They'd been dumb all their lives. Get away. So you could see them chipping in. And then somebody said, yeah, but we prayed for somebody, and it didn't work. Why did it not? Anyway, what we said to them, we know a man who can, so we're going to find out, and we're coming back. <laughs> so they said, all right, fair dues. So what happened to you? Well, and so it went on. And then they said, Jesus, can we just go through this? It'd be lovely. And Jesus said, fine. Let's go away and let's go through this. Let's see what we can learn from this. And then they get to the place and there's a wretched crowd there. You can see them saying, uh, well, I don't know what language they use. It's Aramaic, so I can't speak it. But the, the drift, it probably is grief. And then Jesus looks at them and he says, these people need... So, he says, let's talk to them. And the disciples say, rats. And then, late in the afternoon, they say, how do we get out of this? Have you ever had this? You, you've set yourself for something, and then a visitor comes, and you, how do you just... <laughs> right, we've got a reason. Lord, 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 yes. We've been looking at the time. Have you really? Yes. It's late, you know. Oh, it is, yes, late. And, you know, we're far from the town. It is true, you know. I walked here just like you did. We're a long way from town. Yes, I think, Lord, it would be really kind if they all pushed off to the town to get some food. Because they've been here a long time. And it doesn't say it here. But Jesus might have said, has anybody told you they're hungry? Because he doesn't say they did. No, it was the disciples. No, Lord, they must be hungry. All oh, right, therefore they, they are hungry. Fine, okay. So he says, listen, if you really want to help these people, why don't you just do it? Pardon? What have you just been doing? Well, we went out and we did this and we did that. We found that God's kingdom makes a difference. So Jesus said, of course it does. You've seen me do it. You've done it now, haven't you? Yes. Go on then. Big silence. What do you mean, go on then? Here they are. You want to help them? Do you think God loves them? Yes. Do you think God wants to feed them? Are they hungry? Lord, this is just daft. There's too many of them. How much? 5,000 men. Now, that reading of the text is my interpretation, and I offer it to you. But it makes sense for me of the last bit. Verse 
17. So, Jesus fed them. And then, when they'd all ate and were satisfied, 5,000, the disciples picked up the 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. 12 basketfuls. Why 12? 12 disciples. And what have they picked up? Leftovers. Everybody had been fed, and this was left over. This was God being extravagant. This was luxury. And then I would imagine Jesus said, that's yours. And I go, oh, and that's yours. Because I think the disciples were being devious. They were just trying to get rid of the crowd. I don't think Jesus ever intended to feed those 5,000. It was a disciples' idea, and he called their bluff. Because they weren't going to do it either, were they? They were going to get shot of them. So now, Jesus, that lovely tutorial we were going to have, now we can do it. Well, sometimes it happens exactly like that. You think, oh, and then somebody shows up. And in your heart of hearts, you're thinking, how can I gracefully draw this to a close? Well, now I can offer you that, and you must go and say, well, okay, that's one way of looking at the text. Does it stand up? Does it make sense? Does it fit? And if it doesn't fit, that's fine. Have a go putting your interpretation. Take it, whatever you think, back to the text and say, does this work? Well, I suggest to you, this works. Those disciples were tired, and they'd never done it before. That's true. But after you've healed a few people and cast out demons, they'd never done that before. And casting out demons was really big business in those days. Do you know, we still have today uh, the little orders of service which were created for Jewish exorcists where they went and did it. And they did. God gave Jewish exorcists the power to cast out demons, but they used a proper service. And it went on for a while. You, You read scriptures, you prayed, you promised this, that, and the other. Jesus came along and just said, out. And they went. And the disciples said, out. And they went. This was completely new, and it was, uh, uh, people lived in fear of the demonic. It's not like now. We think it, it's a bit of a joke or whatever. Or maybe we don't think quite that. But we don't encounter it in a frightening way. The frightening thing about the demonic is that you can't control it. I found that living in African culture. Why did people fear demons in Africa? Because they've got no lever on them. They can't control them. You have to bribe them through the witch doctor to try and do and so on. In fact, I remember the story of Leslie Newbigin, a great missionary bishop who went out to India as a bright young thing. He'd been to Cambridge where he did his theology, you see, and he was very good at the Greek and all this stuff. So he went off with a mission partner into this little village and they were reading the story of one of these exorcisms. And he is the new bright young thing. He said, well, we would like that. So the translator came along and he spent about 20 minutes explaining why actually that was only what they thought in those days because in those days the culture was different and these days it's different too and so on. And then one of the elders, his old wisdom, you know, wise Christian, after all of this went on and on and on, said, can I ask you a question? He said, yes. He said, why are you making such heavy weather of this? When a demon comes in, we just tell him to go in the name of Jesus and he goes and we go home for tea. What's the problem? (laughs) Oh, he says. For them, it was a problem. Okay, 
Any other last thought? We are drawing to the a close now. That's why I think Jesus, that, that Luke puts these two stories bound side by side. And it says, when they return, they then. It flows one to the other. Is that okay for now? Yeah. Well, the fact is, the best part of this story is actually the verse you didn't read. The next verse. Chapter 9. If you, like, if you just move on the slide, yeah. Chapter 9, verse 18. So we've had the devious disciples, as I suggest. We've had the... And all of that made the point. Salt in the womb. Awkward, embarrassed and all of it. Verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him. Do you see? Jesus doesn't give up on them. They're still there tomorrow. You can be not only slow and dim-witted, you can be devious and naughty. And still, Jesus doesn't give up. And you know, I sometimes think, I do sometimes think we don't understand this. When the gospel came, it was good news. What do you think is good news about going out and telling people what they're doing is wrong? You know, if you all live by the sermon, it might be a better place. You know, some, there was a great sort of takeoff. I won't do it now. But anyway, the long and the short of it is, what is good news? It is that which sets us free, which is, traps us. Separation from God. Jesus has sorted it. Not being able to break bad habits of a lifetime. Jesus has sorted it. Not being able to find a direction in life. Jesus has offered it. Not having a sense of belonging and identity. Jesus creates it. Not knowing, having family, Jesus gives it. What the gospel is, is really good news. And so often we've domesticated it and we've replaced the good news of a new life with a set of rules and conventions. Do you know? What's the gospel? Come to church. No, thank you. Who would want to go to church in their right mind? I mean, honestly. Does it... Church, the good news. No, it's part of the people who are discovering the good news and we can help each other. Jesus is the good news and he is the one who looks at these lots and says, come on, keep going. We'll try again. And they say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. That's the good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, will you put within us that confidence that we are yours, your brothers and sisters, your friends, and we don't have to depend on being good, achieving, being in the right place. We are sinful, muddled, bumbling people with devious hearts, and we thank you that you love people like us, that your Holy Spirit transforms people like us and that you're patient with people like us, and that you think we're great, and our names are engraved on the palm of your hand. Lord, we pray for the way Satan gets in and attacks the community of disciples, the church, where he finds good things, truthful things to accuse us of, of failure, of sin, of letting people down, of missing the way, of pleasing ourselves, of avoiding your call and all these things. 
And Jesus, we thank you that when you rose from the dead, you made clear that none of these have the last word, but you do. So, Lord, we pray for each other tonight. If there are people here who genuinely have condemned themselves when they should not, we ask for them a new freedom in Christ. May your spirit just say to them, you are loved. You are mine. Nobody can touch you. You are mine. You are my friend. And as we experience that and perhaps enter into it anew, we pray that that might be so with the people we meet. We convey to them the good news that somebody loves them, meets them where they are, and has a better way, a better life for them. And we thank you for those at work whom we are not yet Christians, as Tom mentioned. For those who are our neighbours who are not yet Christians. For those people of other faiths who sometimes live much more moral lives than we do. We thank you for those we meet and know. And Jesus, as those disciples finished by worshipping you with joy, we pray that you will help us to do exactly the same. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So shall we pray for each other in the words of the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.